Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Don. Hey, uh, I just want to say how much I personally appreciate Don's ministry, and I think it's an absolute gift and blessing to the church and the community. So I just want to affirm what he said. Hey, can we have the lights down a wee bit? I, you know, up, whatever, down a bit, so I'm not blasted away by... Uh, yeah, I want to say thanks to Katie too for the worship. I thought that was kind of, just had a lovely touch to it this morning. Did you feel that? Yeah. You know, it was just kind of, um, kind of really special. Well, I've been asked to, for the next two weeks, to take a, a slightly different approach in what I do. And uh, I have a real passion for apologetics. And apologetics, it gives you an overall perspective and helps people provide answers um, for the, Christ, for the Christian faith. And um, so it's going to be a little bit different. Um, this morning I want to give a really broad perspective and next week I want to focus in on particular incidents when Jesus actually met with um, the rich young ruler. So let's pray as we start. Father, I thank you that um, you gave us the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And I pray this morning that your spirit would speak to us and help us to understand perhaps deeper a little bit um, of what you have for us. And ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. I normally like to um, start with some scriptures, but this morning I want to read a story to you and then tell you another story to kind of set a, a little bit of context. I want to talk to you about, can we just have the first um, thing, about looking in the mirror of God's truth. And I want to ask you a question as we start. What's the difference between a man looking in a mirror and a woman looking in a mirror? How long it takes? Mike got it right. I was going to say about half an hour. Now, I know when a guy goes to a mirror in the morning, I clean my teeth, have a quick look, so you've got no toothpaste there, give me here a bit of a scratch, and that's about it. Now, my wife takes, I kid you not, probably about 20 minutes, does it here, right? everything's got to be, you know. And that's the difference. Why do we look in a mirror? Because we want to see that we're okay. We want to see if there's anything wrong with us so we can actually fix it before we go out into the world and meet other people, correct? Yeah. That's why we look in the mirror. So I want to read, first of all, a story about a, a, a guy. This guy's name was Andreas Thomas, and... The year was 2000, and Russia began releasing political prisoners. And in the midst of them was this man came named Andres Thomas. He'd been imprisoned for 55 years. Okay? Some of you may have heard this story before. He was Hungarian and wouldn't stop talking gibberish to everyone. No one could understand his mumbling, sometimes animated speech. Officials decided to execute the old man, that was nice of them, assuming he had grown mad. Somebody said, at least bring a psychiatrist in to evaluate him before you execute him. So they went and got a Hungarian psychiatrist to come and evaluate this man. He stayed with Thomas for a few days, and afterwards he came out with a report. You know what? He's not insane. He's not talking gibberish. He's talking in an old Hungarian dialect. His prison conditions, however, have nearly driven him insane. You brought him here when he was 20 years old and put him in solitary confinement, near solitary confinement, for 55 years? Give him back to us and we'll make him well. He was put in a wheelchair and released. One of his first requests was to be given a mirror. He had not seen a mirror 
or his own reflection for 55 years. When he was handed the mirror, he held it up to his face for an instant and then quickly put it away, buried his face in his hands and sobbed uncontrollably. I wonder what it would be like for us to actually look in the mirror of God's truth and to see ourselves as God actually sees us. Interesting, isn't it? The second story concerns a wedding I was asked to take when I was pastoring in Taupo. And this Cambodian guy came to me one day and he said, I'd like to get married in your church. He had, I think, his, an elderly lady with him who was an auntie or something. And uh, he couldn't speak very well, good English. And they explained that they were Buddhists. And I said, well, why do you want to get married in a Christian church? And they said, well, New Zealand's a Christian country and we want to get married in a Christian church. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Look, and I said, that's great. Look, I'd love to take your wedding. And uh, anyway... He turns up later on, it was an arranged marriage, and this lovely Cambodian girl, and she couldn't speak English. But anyway, to cut a long story short, when they arrived on the day of the wedding, the, the bridegroom came first, and then the bride, bride, the bride and her, you know, came as well. And they were all dressed in wedding dresses. Three of them, all dressed in wedding dresses. I'd never seen anything like it. It was just incredible. It was the most amazing experience I had in terms of a wedding. But anyway, after that, they invited us out to a dinner. There weren't a lot of them. And over that dinner, I got to know quite a few, got to know one or two of them quite well. The tragedy is that of those Cambodian people there, some of them were the only members of their family left that all come from Cambodia. And as you know, probably aware, some of you are a bit older, um, Cambodia was taken over in 1975 by a guy called Pol Pot with the Khmer Rouge. And by 1979, they had murdered one and a half million out of the seven million population. And these people were the remnants left over. Most of their families have been killed. Anyone who wore glasses was killed. Anyone who had any education was just killed, brutalised, murdered. Now, why do I tell that story? I tell it because history, does that sort of thing does not come out of a vacuum. I don't want to go into all the events that led up to that, but there's a whole lot of stuff that happened before that allowed that to happen, and within three or four years, those a million and a half people have been murdered. Our history in New Zealand is moving as well. There is a flow to history. There are things that are happening overseas and in New Zealand that are going to have consequences for us in the future. And what I want to do this morning is to share a little bit of how God sees what's happening in New Zealand so as a church we can have a perspective and then begin to provide some answers. Because if we keep doing what we're doing, we're going to get what we've been getting. Okay, does that make sense? Now, if you look at um, current history in Europe, there's violence like we could never have imagined 10 or 15 years ago. And yet it was predicted. In 2016, Colombia legalised homosexual marriage, you know, gay marriage. Do you realise that a few days ago, three men were married? Three men, I repeat, were married. You get your head around that. That didn't come out of a vacuum. And it's going somewhere. And there are huge consequences for us as Christians, as I'll explain. 
Israel in 580 BC was at a crossroads. As you understand, the nation was incredibly blessed of God. It was, it was God's nation. And yet, in the introduction of my Bible, in Lamentations, it says, by the time of Lamentations, holiness was almost an alien concept. So from being God's nation and people living godly lives, by 580 BC, holiness was a concept that was lost. Sounds kind of like New Zealand, doesn't it? So what I want to do is to um, read some scriptures to you, and we're going to just have pick up a few here. Lamentations chapter 1, 16 to 20. It's kind of heavy stuff, I know, but there's a lighter side to it, which we'll work on. This is why I weep. This is the prophet expressing his heart. This is why I weep, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there's no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbours become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. I called my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I'm in torment within, and my heart I'm disturbed, for I've been the most rebellious. He's expressing himself as the nation in that sense. Outside, the sword bereaves. Inside, there is only death. There is death in the city. And it's not just a death of people. It's a death of the culture. It's a death from what God had intended the nation. And he looks around, and he sees death. Okay, next scripture, please. Romans chapter 1. Again, it's heavy stuff. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither, neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires. And that, those lines, God gave them over, is repeated several times towards the end of Romans. Okay, next one. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay, so I want to pick up on that verse in Jeremiah where he said there is death in the city. It's either easy to look back on Pol Pot and say, well, it would never happen here. Those kind of things would never happen. I guess they would have said the same thing before it actually happened to them. But if you look in Lamentations, in verse 16, it says, this is why I weep, and it goes on, my children are destitute because the enemies prevailed. In verse 18, he talks about the rebellion against God's command. And then in verse 20, he talks about death. Okay, let me just say four things here. Culture has a flow to it, and it's probably easier to see from a distance. Now, there are not many advantages about getting older, I kid you not, that, that's the truth. And those of you who are a bit older will, will understand what I'm saying. But you do have perspective of age. 
And I have seen in New Zealand huge changes that have taken place in the last 20 or 30 years. I kid you not. Those of you that are, say, 20 or 30, you're born into a culture, you simply accept that's the way it is. And that's the way probably it has always been. I kid you not. We've seen massive, huge changes. That's the first thing. The second thing, we need to have a correct diagnosis in order to have a correct solution. If you go to a doctor with a problem, and maybe it's, it's a reasonably, you think it's a reasonably serious problem, maybe you've got a growth on your arm or something, and, and the doctor just ignores it. Well, you're going to be worse off. He may even give you a placenta, just say, go home and take a disprin, and uh, you're going to be worse off because he actually hasn't dealt with the problem. He may minimise it. He may say, well, that's not really a big deal. I, I wouldn't worry about that too much because he doesn't actually want to offend the patient. He wasn't, doesn't want to say to the patient, well, okay, I think it's really serious. So he just minimises it. He says, well, yeah, maybe it's, you're just probably worrying a bit too much about it. So... It's actually, you're actually worse off because of that. He may misdiagnose it, and that often happens, or sometimes happens. He gives you the wrong treatment. So you go away, and you're actually worse off. And you may actually go looking for a solution somewhere else, because you don't trust your doctor, you know it's serious, and you find a, try and find a solution somewhere else that is not a solution. Alternatively, he may correctly diagnose it. And he may say, well, you're actually facing something that is really serious and it's quite likely to be terminal. Now, would you sooner him say that or to tell you that, well, it's not really serious? You would, you would want him to be honest with you and to say, you've actually got something that's really serious because once you know what you've got, you're actually in, in a position to actually do something correct or positive about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you're facing a terminal illness, then at least you can get your affairs right and meet with your family and all that. I know that's, you know, I, I guess no doctor likes telling somebody that they've probably got a terminal illness and they've got three months to live or three weeks or whatever. And that kind of thing does happen. So it's really important that we correctly diagnose a situation in order to provide a solution. Yeah. Now, the other alternative is that the doctor can tell you that you've got a terminal illness and you just ignore it and keep on going. <laughs> and that does happen. I've actually seen that in my ministry as a pastor where people deny that they've actually got something wrong with them and they die still denying it. But the tragedy with that is that they deny the opportunity for their friends and relatives to actually journey with them. And it's far harder for the relatives and other people who are left behind because they haven't actually dealt with the situation. Am I making sense? Yeah. Okay. Okay. The third thing is that we need to understand and see where our culture is from God's perspective so we can actually act correctly. Now, over the last, the fourth thing I want to say is over the last few years, we've seen a focus on social works, and they're good, many of them. We've seen focus in the church on motivational teaching, Name it and claim it, prosperity theology, breakthrough theology, all that kind of stuff. But I don't find a lot of mention of sin and repentance. And yet Jesus started his ministry, as did John the Baptist, with repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Yeah. You agree? Yeah. That's my comment. So some of you might find what I'm saying is a little bit uncomfortable, but ask yourself, is it the truth? 
C.S. Lewis made a comment, and I'll just put his um, quote up here. He made an insightful comment about the tension between our pursuit of truth and the desire for comfort. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you'll get neither comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Okay. So what are some of the key words that we're looking at today? First is the word death, the other one is the word wrath, and the other word is the word sin. Now, while we're just going through this, just remember that Jesus said the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay? Three things that we tend to sideline a little bit in the church. Now, sin is a violation of the Ten Commandments. It actually means missing the mark, falling short, rebellion. But when I put sin in a context of human activity, you'll understand the devastation that sin causes. Even though in a situation where somebody has violated their marriage vows, and you know the huge impact that happens in a family's life, or, or, or one of your kids does something that is totally and utterly wrong, and the, thing, the whole thing reverberates right through the whole family. Ever had a situation where your house has been violated when you've been away and somebody comes into your house and steals something or pulls stuff out and just wrecks the place? It not only violates your house, it violates something that is sacred in you, your sense of trust and well-being and everything. And what we've got to realise is that sin has a human face, and it is incredibly destructive. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. What about the word wrath? Because that's a kind of a heavy word as well. Wrath is God's hatred of sin and his action towards it, and it comes as a consequence of love. Look, I'm a father. I've got five wonderful kids. <laughs> I say wonderful, they're not perfect. And three of them are daughters, three lovely daughters. Now, how do you think I'd feel as a father if somebody violated one of my daughters? How do you think I'd feel? I'd feel so angry, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you feel angry? Why? Because that anger comes out of love. I want the very best for my daughters. I want them to have what God intended. And anyone who violates that, I find offensive and I get angry at it. Now that's what the wrath of God is kind of like. It's the best illustration that I can explain. God's wrath is upon humankind because we have so violated what he has given that there are consequences to it. There are consequences. We cannot violate God's commandments without there being consequences, internally and externally. So wrath is really important. So let's have a look at our New Zealand culture. Let's have a look at the, the, the term sin and, or death in this case. When, when I use the term death, what I mean is a departure from a biblical norm resulting in significant consequences and ultimately in God's judgment. And in Job chapter 12, verse 2, it talks about the death of wisdom. 
So it's used in, a, in that kind of context as well. So you can have a death, you can have a death of a dream. Have a death of a marriage. And I know, look, we don't live in a perfect world. Marriages do break up. I understand that. And people make mistakes, I understand that. But you can have a death of a dream, a death of a marriage, death of hope. You can have death of finances. You can have a death of a river. <laughs> We've seen heaps of that in New Zealand because of the greed of mankind. And so the word death means something's diminished, it's made worse, and it's ultimately got consequences. So when we talk about the death of the city, we're not just talking about people dying, we're talking about the death of a culture with consequences for individuals and for that culture. And ultimately one day, they will stand before the judgment seat of God. That is one of the certainties of life. And that's why we talk about being saved, because salvation delivers us from the wrath and judgment of God and keeps us and allows us to be free and to live in eternity with Christ. So let's have a look at our New Zealand culture. And this is kind of sobering. Now, when we look at our culture just generally, we think, look, we've got a great nation. It's called God's own. Got the best rugby team in the world, got the best sailors, and all that kind of stuff. But let me just say this there's an old saying that at the start of the 20th century, not the 21st, the 20th, the atom wasn't split and neither were most marriages. Okay? Now, in our culture today, you would hardly say that marriage is sacred. It's not sacred at all. When I went to school in central Otago, in the Maniatoto, I think all the kids in my class all had two parents. My wife is a teacher, and I'd say, you go to most classes today, they don't have both their parents at home. They're lucky. Nothing's happened in our culture. There's a flow, and that hasn't happened by chance. Let me just share with you one of the things that, that uh, has really changed. Now, I went to university quite a few years ago uh, in the late 60s, and it's interesting that marijuana was just starting to come into university in the late 60s. Now it's mainstream high school, primary school. You can go some places in the North Island and kids come to school stoned because the parents are smoking and stuff all weekend. I know because friends of mine have been teachers have told me that. That was years ago. So you can see how much our culture, the flow in our culture has changed. Our culture has changed. I mentioned before the death of our environment. Grew up in the Maniatoto. The Tai River was a beautiful river. You go swimming as a kid. Now, for, because of greed and all the daring and stuff up there, it's a black, frothy mess. You wouldn't want to swim in it. You wouldn't want to go near the place. Terrible. Why? Worshipping idols. What about the death of trust? Do you trust what the media says? I don't. I read too much. Fake news. Death of biblical truth. Do you know what the word of the year was for the Oxford Dictionary? The word of the year for 2016 was post-truth. Interesting, isn't it? Post-truth, it's an adjective defined as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. 
And what they're saying is that there's no such thing as a transcendent truth. There's no such thing as right or wrong. It's just how I, or some politician or whatever, feels about it. That's what determines how we act. Now that alone has huge consequences for us as Christians. Because if we stand against something, then they say we're standing against progress. We're the ones that are idiots. Who would believe that stuff anymore? It's huge. So there's been, over the past few years, a death of transcendent truth, which has had huge consequences in our culture. You know, schools used to teach character. They don't anymore. My father was a teacher. My wife's parents were teachers. Um, her two sisters were teachers. And I've had this discussion with them. They said, yeah, years ago, they used to teach character in schools. They don't teach it anymore. Why? Because in order to teach character, you have to have a transcendent to measure behavior from. So having disposed of the transcendent, character actually becomes meaningless. Does that make sense? So you can see that the huge implications. What about morals? It's now do what you feel is right. Look, I work with non-Christians. They're great people. <laughs> but their, their ethics and values are a little bit different to mine. That's kind of anything goes. Um, because if you talk about right and wrong, it actually implies that there is, if there is something right, you've got something to measure it by. Okay? What about Honesty. Do you trust people these days like the older people that you did 30 years ago? Look, 30, 40 years ago in business deals, most of them were made by shaking people somebody's hand. Nowadays, contracts aren't worth the paper they're written on. I don't trust, you know, I deal with a lot of people. And I find the level of dishonesty quite disturbing, to be honest, in our culture. Okay, what about the death of the sacred? Do any of you see David Seymour, the... the um, head of the Axe Party, talking about the, um, the blasphemy laws. And he's all in favour, of course, of getting rid of them. But it wasn't just the fact that he wants to get rid of them, and I can understand some of the reason for that, but the way he went out of his way to actually mock the sacred. He actually mocked it on TV. He laughed at it and joked at it. And my question to him would be this. Okay, you expect us to take you seriously... Why should we think there's anything sacred about what you say if you don't have any respect for the sacred for anything else? See, it cuts both ways. And there is a death of the sacred in our culture. There's a death of the normality and sensibility in regard to sexuality. Now, this came from the PP, Post-Primary Teachers Association, just recently, telling secondary schools that gender identity refers to what a person thinks about of their own gender, whether they think of themselves as a man or a woman, irrespective of their biological sex, and that schools must not only recognise these forms of diversity, but affirm them. Okay? So, according to them, I can stand up here and say I'm a woman. Or something in between. And we've got no right to say, it's not right. Why? Because there's no objective anymore. There's no transcendent truth. We've done away with that. So it's purely emotion and what I think, I think. 
Now, again, it's got huge consequences. So there's a death of a biblical perspective of what human beings are. That we're made in the image of God, that we are made male and female, and we're complementary. There's a de- becoming a death of that. Now, there's this lady in 2015, she was a child of a gay father who died of AIDS. She had an article, the, a warning from Canada, same-sex marriage erodes fundamental rights. Do you realise in Canada now, because of legal restrictions on speech, if you say or write anything considered homophobic, including by definition anything questioning same-sex marriage, you could fake discipline, termination of employment, or prosecution by the government. See, why I'm saying what we're dealing with is quite serious? There is a flow to our culture, and some of the things that have been introduced in the States and other places have recently become introduced into New Zealand, and those things don't sit still. They're like dry rot in a house. They get worse. So, she wasn't exaggerating. In fact, she was understating the case. Canada has now passed a law that lets the government take children away if parents don't accept their gender identity. So in other words, if you're a parent in Canada and you have a four-year-old, he, a male, who thinks that he is a female, and you don't agree with that, and he tells his teachers, you're likely to lose your child. That's getting pretty serious stuff. It's actually worse than that. Under Alberta's New Education Act in 2012, homeschoolers and faith-based schools will not be permitted to teach that homosexual acts are sinful as part of their academic program. That's what we're dealing with. There's a flow of culture. Last month, the gay activist organisation Faith in America announced its plans to call on Southern Baptist Convention to remove homosexual practice from the sin list. And by the way, this is not about homosexuality, but it's just an example. Ultimately, they said, we at FIA believe LGBT people should be removed from the sin list. We know interpretations and new revelations have come to light. Right, well, they haven't actually, but um, yeah. Anyway, I'll just leave that with you. Um, what about respect for life itself? Do you realise that over 42 million kids have been aborted in the United States since World War II? In New Zealand, it's about, um, it's about between 250 and 300 a week that are aborted, killed. Okay? That's a whole subject in itself. Okay. Let me kind of um, finish... Well, not finish. I just want to finish some, this example. There was a, a really good article the other day in the paper... And it's just from a couple of weeks ago. And it was called Fatherlessness is Monstering Our Country. It's written by a non-Christian person. I don't know how many of you read it. Fatherlessness is Monstering Our Country. And you realise that um, New Zealand taxpayer currently shells out a billion dollars alone on solemn parent benefit in addition to the billions on other stuff. Our health budget is between 14 and 15 million dollars. Now, I understand that marriages break up and, and solo parents are a consequence of that. But just let me say this. When I was a teenager, there was no, no solo parents benefit. It came into being either 1964 or 1965. And since then, it's just gone up like that. 
And consequently, we are suffering the consequences of those decisions, which are political decisions. It's, it's worse than that, because what it has done is destroyed the two-parent family structure. It gives people permission to opt out of families today, our culture. And when a father walks out on a marriage, or uh, um, usually not even marriages, or, or a woman, it destroys the hope that the kids have. And I've seen this in my own family. It brings poverty. Because when a couple split up, each of them's got half the wealth that they had before. You know, we're going on about poverty in New Zealand, and we've been hearing a lot about it lately. And yet if you look at the, the social background to it, it's basically as a result of people violating God's commands. It's basically a problem of sin. Okay. Now, the article goes on to say that a fatherless son is... This is a non-Christian study made in New Zealand. fatherless son is 20 times more likely to end up in prison. Well, you work out the cost factors of that. You think about all the crime that is created. You're talking about all the people that are violated because somebody has stolen stuff from them. All because somewhere back in the past, we've moved away from God's blueprint, decided that as a politician, we know best, we can do better. And then what happens with politicians? They make a mess and then they make themselves out of saviors for providing solutions for the messes that they've created in the first place. Nine times more likely to drop out at school. It's tragic. So, more crime, death of security. How many of you, when you go away, come to church this morning, left you all your windows open? Jail, laugh. I, I used to work for um, a company that sold ventilation systems. And, and I used to say to people, um, you know, when, when you go to the supermarket or when you go away for a weekend, do you leave your windows open? Or when your kids go to bed at night, do you leave your windows open? They used to look at me as if I was stupid. Because 30 years ago, we could do that. New Zealand was different 30 years ago. Didn't have to worry about stuff like that. You could trust people, you could trust your neighbours. But our culture has moved hugely in the last 20 or 30 years. And as Christians, we need to be smart and see where we're going so we can actually provide some answers and help people. Because most people are trapped in this. They don't actually understand what's happening and why it's happening. Does that make sense? So what about... Um, here's another one. I should just mention higher insurances and more people in prison and all that stuff. What about the 13,000? There are 13,000 of those solo mothers who refuse to name who the father is. What about the death of morals? What about the death of responsibility? What about the death of accountability? I mean, is this an improvement? I don't think so. Okay, just Friday the 16th, teen suicide rate, the world's worst. I'm not making these things up. That was in the paper. Our teen suicide rate is the worst in the Western world. And the reason is because as a nation... We have turned our back on what God has set down as his blueprint for how we should live. And there are consequences to it. Sure, look, some things are better. Look, we live longer. I'm grateful for that. Better opportunities for women. It's great. Better opportunities for everyone. 
the range of things that we can do as jobs is, is fantastic today. We've got great roads, better cars, better health systems. But can we honestly say our country is morally and spiritually healthier than it was 30 years ago? No way. We've gone down. And I see some of the older people nodding because you know what I'm saying. Let's have the next picture up on the thing here. You recognise the face? If you don't, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I'm not a golf fan, but that's Tiger Woods. He was caught the other day. And I actually think that's the face of our modern world, the sadness of our modern world. And we shouldn't laugh at that. He's been taking at least five major psychiatric drugs, powerful drugs being prescribed to him. Where did it all start? Well, he violated his marriage vows. And it just seems strange that everything seems to have gone downhill since then. And, and look, a heart should go out to him. You know, if only he understood what he was doing and came to the cross and knew that he could be forgiven by God and his life could be transformed and changed and, the, and he could walk away from some of that stuff and start a new life because that's what Jesus offers. Does that make sense? Okay. Are you with me so far? Okay, so let me ask you some questions. Is sin the issue or am I wrong? Is this about violating God's commandments or is it about something else? Do we just need more money for the unfortunates? Do we just need more counselling in our culture, more psychiatric drugs, more housing programs, cradle to the grave monitoring by the state? More welfare programs and payments. And in the church, more social work programs and self-improvement courses and more motivational teaching. Will that solve the problems? The answer is no. We have to have the correct diagnosis and have the correct answer. And you can, if you don't believe me, you want to read some of the stories of revivals. What happened? People transformed from being drunkards overnight, became godly, wonderful parents within a very short time. Let me just have a comment here from um, a guy called Herbert Mora, who some of you will recognise. He's a top psychologist in the United States years ago. In fact, he's head of the American Psychiatric or Psychological Institution. And he said, For several decades, we psychologists looked upon the whole matter of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus and acclaimed our liberation from it as epoch-making. But at length we've discovered that to be free in the sense, that is to have the excuse of being sick rather than sinful, is to court the danger of also becoming lost. And becoming amoral, ethically neutral and free, we've cut the very roots of our being, lost our deeper sense of selfhood and identity, and with neurotics themselves we find ourselves asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? And what does living mean? Now that guy um, was not a Christian, but he went to churches later on and comment here, he said he condemned psychoanalysis for being soft on sin and now he found that the church was dominated by similar permissive assumptions. So he went looking into church for a solution and didn't find it. How tragic! The tragedy of Thurman Moore was he ended up committing suicide because he could find no answers. And there are answers. God has given us the word of God 
and Jesus to provide an answer. Okay, so what do we do from here? What, what, what can we encourage ourselves with? Where, where can we go? Okay, next slide, please. So, look. First thing I want you to do is pray for revelation and the inability to understand the Word of God. Truth is our reference point. We believe the Bible is the revealed Word of God. That's where we start from. Okay, that's our reference point. And you need to read it and understand it. We need to think more as Christians. Try and understand what's happening in the world and look for answers. Secondly, remember the cross and the resurrection is God's statement about sin, new life, and hope. Jesus died on the cross and took the most awful punishment that anyone's ever experienced because the wrath of God was directed at the Son. He took God's wrath upon him in order to save us from the consequences of sin. Okay? That is our defining point in that sense. The resurrection where he rose from the dead gives us new life. We've got something great to look forward to. It's a dividing line, the cross. The arms are stretched out. One side is death. The other side is life. Okay, here's another really important one. Appreciate that Jesus didn't come in the world to condemn the world. He said that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said, I didn't come in the world to condemn the world. But he said, anyone who does not believe in me is already condemned. Now, I think it's a really important point. Our focus has to be on Jesus as the solution, not sin as the problem. And I think in the church, we have focused on sin as the problem. We need to acknowledge it and help people to face up to it, but it's not the focus of what we're on about. Our focus is to be on Jesus and the Word of God as a solution. Is that clear? Okay, cool. Now, when we go to the next one, appreciate that God's defining Word is not about wrath. While you read Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's a lot about the wrath of God, and it's kind of heavy stuff, I know that. But there's a verse in there that's kind of really, I think, sums up. It says, it's your kindness that leads me to repentance. So instead of being people that condemn people, others for failures, it's our kindness, because we're to be an ambassador for Christ. It's our kindness that should help them to come to a place of repentance. Does that make So rather than us condemning people, because I've done some horrible things, and you'll have all done some horrible things, none of us stand guiltless before the cross. We're ashamed. So why should we condemn other people? Sure. Does a doctor condemn a patient for coming with cancer? Doesn't. He says, look, you've got a problem. This is the best way forward. And so it's our kindness that leads... God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Okay, now, fifthly, as Christians, we need to be confident, bold, and wise. It's good news. We've got good news for people that have screwed up. We've got good news for a culture that is going the wrong way. We've got good news for members of our families who are messing things up. It's good news. We're countercultural. We're not going to be... Go with the, with the stream of our culture. We're going to stand against it in a good way and say there's actually a better answer. There's a better solution. God's way. Okay. So we're the revolutionaries. Stand lovingly against the stream. I'll just read, read to you here. and This is something that really convicted me um, 
In First Peter, it talks about, um, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Okay? A lot of people stop there. But Peter goes on, he says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Okay? Keeping a clear conscience. So in other words, when we're dealing with people who've got their lives messed up, it's not our job to condemn them. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will convict of sin, righteousness and judgment. It's our part to deal with them with love and grace and mercy in the same way that Jesus did. Now think if we can learn that. That's, to me, that's a real key. That was a huge learning curve for me. So number eight is we need to um, pray for our leaders. And I think this is a key. In Jeremiah 8, he slates the leaders. He said they go around saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, they're saying everything's going to be fine. Everything's okay. When the reality is it wasn't. And we need to pray for our leaders in New Zealand, our Christian leaders, that they will actually stand up and stand against what's happening. Often I listen in vain for Christian leaders to say something about some of the things that are happening. But for our own leadership in church, we need to pray for our leaders. And we've got good leaders. You know, it's, it's a good church here, which is why I'm staying. <laughs> I like it. Um, and, but we need to pray that they make the right decisions that help the church move forward in a way that it can be a light and a beacon in our community. Yep. And known for its love and you know, all that kind of stuff and for its answers. And these are not soft answers. These are hard answers. They're straight down the line. They're not harsh, but they are hard. So just about finished here. So, so the next thing is, yeah, we need to pray for revival. We need to pray for revival. And I challenged you a few weeks ago, come, start coming to the prayer meeting. Look, I don't get every Sunday, because I'm away quite a bit, but I come when I can. If you only come for 10, 15 minutes, come to the prayer meeting. Let's start praying that God will revive our church and our nation. Because it starts with you, me, starts with you, starts with our church, and it starts with our nation. But if we don't pray, and we don't pray as a church, then basically we're just coming and going, and we're not taking it seriously. We're dealing with a serious issue here. Okay. Okay, pray for revival. Now, let me just finish with... Um, next slide, please. This is from a guy called Michael Brown, who... It does a, um, he's got the most popular Christian radio talk back in the States called Line of Fire. If you go on the, on the um, internet, go to Line of Fire and get his stuff. It's fantastic. But he said, in case you've been sleeping under the rock the last few years, here's a newsflash. America has gone totally mad. You'll notice the picture, male, female. To be clear, I don't mean that all Americans are off their rocker. Well, I've got a daughter who lives there. She isn't. I mean that right is now wrong. The abnormal is now normal. And what's a, what was once was unthinkable is now celebrated. Next one, please. Time magazine. My brother's pregnancy in the making of a new American family. Article was written by a woman who was describing her brother's pregnancy. In other words, her sister's pregnancy. Well, what, what, the twist is that now. Her sister is now identified as a brother. Next one, please. So Michael sums up. Oh, and there's another one. May 19, 2017 from the LifeSite News, breastfeeding organisation welcomes transgender nursing men. 
So his comment, as a God-following follower of Jesus, and I agree with what everything he says, I can see three possible outcomes for the near future. And Jesus comes back before we completely self-destruct. We completely self-destruct or we have a great and a rude awakening that will save us from destruction. And he's talking about a revival. The wages of sin, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, I've just about used up all my time. I just want to read out one last thing. And there was a prison in the United States called Angola Prison. And uh, it was one that had a reputation as being the most violent prison in America. One of the most violent. When people went to the prison, they were given a knife to protect themselves. Okay? And most of the inmates were there for life, no parole, so they had nothing to lose. Most have been, many have been convicted for murder, manslaughter and rape, all those kind of nice things. And due to the tough sentencing, they had no hope of ever leaving those walls. So there was violence, there was blood on the floors, there was just mayhem in the prison. There was a Christian guy called Bill Kane who took over the, the superintendency of the prison and he decided to do something about it. So he gave a Bible to every prisoner. They had chapel services were available every day and a whole range of Christian stuff put in there and the prison started to change. And today it's one of the safest maximum security prisons in America. And he implemented a work program. They had a, introduced a seminary under the supervision of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. They have chapels, churches on the 18,000 property. They've set up their own hospice program. And the transformation of that is amazing. Violence has dropped by 90%. Why? Because a man had a vision for what God could do in a place that seemed impossible. And that's our challenge to us. What could God do if we'd only believe and act? Yep. Let me pray. And then I'll ask the musicians to come up. Thanks, Katie. Let's pray. Father, we, just, we want to thank you that you love us enough to speak to us. You love us enough to speak to us about our sin. You love us enough to have sent Jesus to die for our sin and pay the price. And I pray that as a church we would have a greater understanding of the privilege and the role that we have in our community here. I want to pray for our leaders. That you give them great wisdom, inspiration, vision, courage. Lord, that we may do the unthinkable. <laughs> we may create a storm, a storm for you here. So I just commit to you what I've shared this morning and pray that you would take of that what you want people to think about and act upon. So we just ask your blessing upon us now in Jesus' name. And just as the worship team starts, um, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never made that commitment, you're walking on thin ice. And I'd invite you to do something about it this morning. Do you want your life turned around? You need to repent and you need to commit your life to Jesus Christ. There are consequences either way. And the consequences, if you keep going the track that you're going down there, I wouldn't want to be in your footsteps. If you commit your life to Jesus Christ, he will transform your life. He'll forgive you for your sin. And you'll have a future in eternity with him. I'll leave the choice with you.